this is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And we are super excited to be joined by female superstar lady lawyer, Carmen Rowe, all the way from Houston to our North community, Conroe. Fastest growing city in the country, according to the Wall Street Journal. How are you, Carmen? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year. 2018. Do you have any resolutions? Of course I do. Okay, let's talk about them. Okay, my resolution this year is to be a lot more selfish. I know that sounds really self-involved, and that's because it is. (laughs) (laughs) So take care of Carmen more in 2018. Absolutely. I think people don't take care of themselves uh, well enough. And certainly as a criminal lawyer who devotes most of my time and attention to other people's needs and not my own. Uh, it's the last thing to to get to every day. And so now it's going to be the first thing. Priority number one, That's Carmen it. Rowe. Numero uno. Well, you're definitely in my priority list as far as people that I like to take care of. So I'm glad that you are also taking that time to dedicate to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Now, but, since you asked. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, how about you? So my resolutions are to be more organized, which can oh, be a struggle. Yeah, that's real. Um, and also um, to try to sparkle more both in and out of the courtroom. Well, that's that's a natural thing for you. So, so uh, no effort required. That's what I, you can never have enough sparkling as a lawyer or on your person, in my opinion. Well, and you have more than most, so it comes natural. So. Well, so it may be an easier resolution than a lot of people. Or it's going to be too much. I mean, are you really going to turn it up? Because if you do, everyone else is going to have to. I mean, it it could be more than we can handle. I could set the bar too high, perhaps. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, speaking of New Year's, um, I know that you are, are in Houston, so you're pretty familiar with the story involving a person who came down to celebrate New Year's in Houston, and, and maybe things didn't go as planned. <laughs> Somebody got a little too intoxicated, a little too much fun at the Hyatt. And this was even before New Year's, as a matter of fact. Thank goodness this gentleman uh, had a little too much fun. Apparently, he'd been intoxicated for several days leading up to New Year's Eve. So he was was doing his own pre-party. Oh, there was a a significant pre-party. Were there any other guests invited as far as you I was just going to say, (laughs) I think this was a solo venture. And so that makes it also troubling, sad, and maybe a little interesting. But, so what happened with this? So essentially, uh, he was intoxicated for several days. He was staying at the Hyatt Regency downtown, where they were having one of the largest New Year's Eve parties in Houston. Like the heart of the celebration. The heart of it. I mean, it's one of the largest uh, that I know of. I think it was the largest. And they expected several thousand, thousand people. people inside the building. And so the night before, apparently this gentleman was having another rager at the bar and his personality was such that he made himself known for every day he was there and, and drinking too much. And he just got out of control. They asked him to leave. He refused to leave. And finally, they had security and an off-duty uh, police officer escort him to his room to remove him. So it wasn't a situation where, you know, we have certainly represented folks that get a little overserved and they find themselves in the back of a patrol car arrested for a public intoxication. That wasn't the situation, right? No, actually, uh, they didn't, they weren't arresting him, which is troubling. They allegedly, anyway, they were escorting him out, which what was he going to do when he got to his car since he couldn't drive? That's another issue. But ultimately, he was taken into his room and they found what they described as an arsenal of weapons that, that night or early that morning. And he was arrested on unknown charges. Well, certainly... Um if you do have a fire, like, for example, we have both had clients that have been pulled over for DWI and then they find a firearm and then they get also a companion 
carrying a weapon charged because they say you can't be intoxicated and in possession of a firearm. But in this situation, it's kind of kind of a gray area of whether they even determined he was intoxicated or what he was being detained for or what have you. Right. I think he was detained probably just for being an unpleasant person inside of a bar. That's right. But then the investigation kind of went from there. And I think there was some serious concern that he was maybe thinking about some terrorist act like what happened in Vegas. And do you know what floor his room was on? Was it a lower floor or a higher floor? No, they said it was a higher floor, but they didn't say which floor. And there wasn't a lot of information at the time. I mean, a lot of people that I know that were going out to the Hyatt were very concerned that night that there was some plan in place to commit some horrible act at that uh, party. Well, and certainly, I don't think it just made local news. I think it made national news. It did. It did. Because uh, there was a big concern across the country that maybe this was going on anywhere from New York to Houston, but we're one of the largest cities in the country. And so there was a real concern that this gentleman had big plans with a lot of big guns and other weapons. And so as far as I know that he was detained that evening, uh, based on what you know now about the story, do you think things are as serious as the media made it out to be at the time? No. I mean, the good news is it was all kind of a false alarm. It turned out he had three handguns, uh, some ammunition, and a rifle that he said he didn't want to leave in his vehicle because they could be stolen. And certainly you've got to be careful with what you leave in your vehicle if you don't have a locked trunk or, you know, if you have just a typical kind of SUV where you don't have a trunk at all. You never know. Especially in downtown Houston. In downtown Houston. Fortunately, the struggle's real there. Not not the safest place on earth. (laughs) Exactly. And so it turned out it was a false alarm, but it does raise a lot of questions that people have about, you know, bringing uh, heavy artillery into hotel rooms and, you know, searches that may go on either in rooms or of persons entering and exiting places where a lot of people congregate. So do you, as far as you know, is this individual still in custody, either state or federally for any purpose? He is. So he was charged with resisting arrest and um, also with assaulting a police officer. So I don't really know what happened in the course of the detainment and the search of the room and so forth. But given his level of intoxication, as alleged by the officers, there's no doubt that things escalated and I guess got out of control. So... Yeah, and what's interesting about that, at least in my experience, is that it's not unusual for a drunk person or an intoxicated person to be charged with resisting arrest or assault of a public servant, but you don't usually get charged with both. No, I know. (laughs) It's an unusual situation, but what's interesting is, I guess for the regular public, is he was never charged with any weapons charges. So when he was first arrested, somebody asked me, you know, well, is it illegal to have weapons in a hotel room? And it's like, well, no. It's not. I mean, there aren't gun laws that prohibit you from having certain types of lawful uh, guns and rifles and other things with you. And so um, that's something to keep in mind, too, is that when he was originally detained, if he really had only three handguns, is that really a problem? Is there anything illegal about that? No. Well, and typically what happens in a resisting arrest situation is you have to be And I'm not sure that all prosecutors who are accepting charges or all law enforcement who think that they have resisting charges are familiar, but just actually resisting an arrest where if somebody tries to detain you and you pull your hands away, uh, you try to not be handcuffed, that is actually not a crime. Correct. It's You have to actually use some kind of affirmative force Mm -hmm. um, toward the officer. So the, the charge resisting arrest can be tricky because... A real resisting arrest where you don't want to be handcuffs and you put your hands in the air or behind your back. I mean, in theory, you are resisting arrest, but you're not 
legally, you shouldn't be legally charged or legally responsible in that situation. Right. Well, and given his level of intoxication, now it's going to come down to his word versus the officers. And I'd be surprised giving the the day-long bender he's been on with what his How credible version, his story is. Right, what his version might be, or if he remembers it at all, which is, you know, word to the wise, don't drink too much that you can't remember what you said and did with the officer. And certainly you have people that not only drink too much, but they can find themselves under the influence of Ambien, which is well known to be a blackout drug and, right. and really can cause your memory to be completely, you know, not only do you not for, remember anything that happened, but you may have no ability to recall it at all. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's Ill- illegal to possess a weapon when you're doing any other illegal activity. And so if you believe that he was committing the offense of public intoxication, that he'd become so intoxicated that he wasn't safe to himself and other people, then he could have committed a crime by having guns in his possession at that time. And so I think that's what that law is all about. And, and maybe that was an issue in this case, but they didn't actually get to it for whatever reason, and charged him with resisting, which was probably easier. Well, it might have been the situation because he wasn't in the proximity or the presence of the weapons when he was intoxicated. He was in the lobby or he was in the bar or wherever he was, and then the weapons are, in fact, in his room. Sure. Um, sure. And you, certainly if they're trying to kick him out of the hotel, he's even farther away from his weapons. So. Um, well, the whole story is, you know, it's been misleading from the beginning and then even to the end as you said the resisting plus the assault against an officer is an unusual charge and then that they never charge him with the weapons they didn't really discuss what the you know what they were going to do when they were escorting this gentleman outside of the building when he was too intoxicated to be inside the building the night before new year's eve so there's a lot more questions i think to be asked but you know some interesting topics that come up you know well and the good thing is that regardless of how the circumstances played out the city of Houston was safe on New Year's. Mm-hmm. There was no uh, domestic terrorism that took place here or anywhere else across the country, as far as I'm aware. No, and, and that's the important point, I guess, is that, you know, it was a it was a cautionary tale, if anything. Um, and so it, I think, helped to make everybody a lot more alert going out New Year's Eve because this happened the morning of New Year's Eve. So it was the day of. So as people were getting ready to go out that night, they were a little more aware of the possibility of there being an issue. And so... Well, so our city's safe, but but as we had discussed, you know, the the threat of domestic terrorism is a, is a real thing that we've experienced not only over the last year, but just recently being a, a citizen of the United States. What's your what's your opinion on that? You know, I think domestic terrorism is a fascinating situation that presents uh, in criminal law because it's a situation where you have individuals that are targeting strangers. You know, so a lot of the, the crime that we see and we've seen over the, you know, since the beginning of time has a lot to do with passion crimes and crimes against people that you know and people that you're angry at or afraid of or whatever. But these are situations that involve crimes against people that, 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 you know, are faceless, are nameless. And it doesn't matter to the person targeting the individuals, who they are, where they're from, socioeconomic background, et cetera. And so it really raises very different issues in, you know, both the criminal law and prosecution, but also as as a regular citizen to protect yourself. How do you protect yourself against, you know, a person who's targeting everybody, everyone, you know, the person who happens to be standing in front of them at the time. And so it creates a lot of fear and a lot of questions about, you know, how you can better protect yourself. So as far as I will say that there has, I think, over the last decade, and I, and I think this is 
evident just from what we've seen is there's more spree killing or mass shootings that have that have ever occurred historically. Do you think that there's a, a gun answer as far as gun regulation that could solve any of these issues or what what is your opinion on that? You know, I think that no. In short, no, I don't think gun control is, is the answer because I think you would agree and I can tell you that on the front line of criminal justice is the biggest problem is mental health. And so every single uh, you know issue that we have in domestic terrorism, domestic violence uh, here in this country, we have individuals who have serious mental health issues. Um, the Las Vegas shooting is a perfect example, uh, among others where we're not addressing what I think the real problem is, is that these people need help that we can't or won't provide to them. And then they happen to come across some sort of weapon to uh, give meaning to, you know, whatever delusion they're going through at the time, whether that's a gun or not, whether it's a knife, whether they use their hands. I mean, there's people that are assaulted on the streets in downtown Houston all the time by people who are there who have mental health issues. Well, and Carmen, I think that you know, what I, a lot of the mainstream public doesn't realize is that if you want to get a firearm or a weapon, you're going to find a way to get one, whether you obtain it lawfully or unlawfully, those things are readily available. Right. Um, I will say that we do need to take a break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about 2018 and some new changes in the law that some folks uh, may be unaware of that they can look forward to or not look forward to, depending on your preference for substances. Love cooking pancakes from my boy still up, still fresh as a daisy. Playing ping pong Don't forget to download the Lone Star Community Radio app for your Google Play or Apple Store. Bring Montgomery County's community radio with you anywhere with your smartphone or tablet. If you are in the Conroe area, tune in on FM. That is Conroe's FM 104.5, 106.1. This is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And if you're just joining in, we are joined by Houston lawyer, appellate super lawyer, Harmon Rowe, also beautiful. If you're listening on the radio, you may want to tune in and see us on TV so you can see your pretty face. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here, Carmen. Thank you for having me. Having fun. And if you're just joining us, we were visiting about the New Year's Eve-related not shooting, uh, but man who was detained at the Hyatt for having what they determined at first was an arsenal of weapons, later determined not an arsenal. He didn't even get charged with any weapons-related offense, offenses, excuse me. But we were visiting about, you know, what can we do differently as a country? And I think that Carmen is saying what a lot of people, you know, would say but don't necessarily have a solution for, which is mental health is an issue and you know, people that engage in this domestic-type terrorism, even though this wasn't what happened at the, at the Hyatt, but these mass shootings, these spree shootings, if, if you're not on some kind of a religious agenda for ISIS and, and you just randomly target a group of people, there's something wrong upstairs. Um, and ultimately, Texas is in the bottom 40 states as far as dealing with mental health issues. We've had Dee McWilliams on the show previously talking about Andrea Yates, and just mental health resources are not a priority, I guess, for folks in, in Texas. Well, it's a difficult problem to solve. A lot of people don't know how to uh, 
uh, address it, especially when funding is one of the biggest problems. And then, of course, education and, and resources and things. Um, but just because it's hard doesn't mean it needs to be, you know, forgotten. And so it's the number one issue in criminal justice across the board in the country. And certainly it's a big factor for almost every single spree killing uh, here in, you know, this country. That Every single act of domestic terror that we've talked about involves some significant mental health issues, which is surprising how downplayed that is. And how, you know, instead we demonize these people and talk about how they were raised and so on and so forth, when clearly there was a mental health issue. Clearly there was some delusional problems leading up to or um, surfacing at the time that these shootings are occurring. Well, and what's interesting, too, is that even in courts where they do, in counties that they do have mental health courts or mental health resources available for folks, there's often limitations that... You know, if it's a case that involves violence or if it's an assaultive offense, you don't qualify for our grant or our program. And, and so it's kind of limiting where it's like, we'll take care of you if your mental health issues are ones that we feel comfortable with taking <laughs> care of, like you're addicted to drugs, but we're not going to help you if it results in behavior that's destructive to other people, which is exactly the kind of behavior that we're trying to prevent and regulate. Right. The most important type of behavior to address head on rather than letting it kind of run its way through the criminal justice system, getting to a result that we know is not the one that we want, which is recidivism and other types of domestic terrorism that exists here in the country and is more and more prevalent. Well, and certainly you have people that have mental health issues that whether they've been diagnosed or haven't been diagnosed, they will often seek to self-medicate with sometimes illegal drugs because that will stabilize their brains or ha cause them to think that they... Um, are seeming or feeling more normal. And then that can lead to addiction, which, you know, can again be part of this cycle where then you end up in jail because you have an addiction to illegal drugs. And when really the original problem is the mental health issue that's not being addressed. Well, and let's talk about that for a second, because mental health issue can be something that's maybe organic, and then it can be created by abuse or misuse of prescription drugs, which is extremely common and abuse of prescription drugs is on the rise as being one of the number one um, issues in DWI and in criminal justice today. And so when I say mental health issues, I think that there's people who are abusing drugs who fit into that category as well. And I, and I absolutely agree with you. And I've seen it firsthand as, as somebody that's been in this industry for almost two decades, is that the people that are addicted to prescription drugs or that are over-prescribed prescription drugs or that doctor shop um, to get more prescription drugs is has be basically gone up every year in my, in my exposure and experience. No, and that's what they're talking about as a phenomenon across the country and particularly here in Texas, of course, but across the country that DWIs are now focusing more on drug recognition and less on alcohol. And so that's something that we're not prepared for or not as prepared as we should be. And that's a, a changing uh, landscape in criminal justice and something that I think we're going to see a lot more of if you believe the trends across the country. Well, another thing that's interesting is that you do have a lot of folks that think, okay, I'm taking my medication. I'm taking it as prescribed. Okay. There's also those that, that abuse the prescription medication, and that may even be a greater, you know, formula, but there's folks that take their medication as prescribed and they get arrested for DWI and they say, well, I only took the medication that I am supposed to take. 
And, you know, even if they list what those prescriptions are, you can actually still be charged with DWI. And I think a lot of folks don't realize that I was prescribed something lawfully. I'm driving lawfully. Why am I going to jail? No, and that's the biggest tragedy and probably uh, represents what we're talking about a little bit. But I would, you know, focus on now is to say the gap between criminal justice and a real understanding of mental health and of the drugs that are needed or used to monitor or assist those people with real mental health issues. So there's so much out there. And Andrea Yates is a great example of what we don't understand and we certainly don't allow for in our criminal justice system. So let's kind of talk about the evolution of, I guess, opiates or opioids as as we know them in our industry. So let's, you know, you have somebody that historically, let's say I, I get in a car wreck and I've got an issue with my disc. And, you know, rehab's not working. And when I say rehab, I mean physical therapy or you're, or you're not committed to the physical therapy because it's too time consuming. You're not dedicated to your health. Like you're going to be in 2018 if you're just tuning in. Carmen is going <laughs> to take care of Carmen. So we all need to take care of her if we see her out. Um, so 2018 versus like, let's say five or six years ago, you had somebody that had this issue you go to a doctor, you get prescribed Vicodin, also known as hydrocodone, also known as Norco. There's a lot of people that take Tylenol, all kinds of derivatives mm-hmm. of Vicodin, generics are the hydrocodone. You can go get a prescription for it, cost you two bucks to get it filled. And then you end up on this, this cycle of addiction where you become addicted to these painkillers. Right. And, and the worst part is, and make no mistake, these are very good people. It's, it's people like you. It's people like me. It could be anyone. You know, I went and had, you know, a, a, a dental procedure and they give me Vicodin, which is highly addictive. And they give me 30-day supply, let's say. I mean, anything that you go in for these days, they're giving out heavily, um, you know, addictive narcotic medication. And so good people who go in with the best of intentions with a little bit of pain because of a toothache, and next thing you know, they're looking at six months later and they're still filling prescriptions that are being written by a physician out in the community. So I have um, an interesting situation where I represented a young lady. Uh, it was probably five or six years ago. She actually had a intoxication manslaughter and she was taking prescription drugs and she was driving in the middle of the daytime down Highway 105, uh, East County. And middle of the day, 1.30 in the afternoon, and, and she had taken uh, Soma, Vicodin, Valium, and the combination of those yeah. really, really impaired her. Um, when when the police arrived on the scene, she had a bag of pills in her lap, mm. and, um, you know, unfortunately, it was hard for her because she had previously um, rear-ended a police officer coming home from a police funeral procession Mm. where another officer had been injured in the line of duty. And so basically she was kind of on notice that this, these drugs can impair you. She was arrested for that several months later. And then fast forward, you know, less than a year later, it escalates till somebody, somebody dies. Mm. Um, And, you know, she's a, troop leader for her, her daughter's Girl Scouts and, and, you know, not drinking. So not in the traditional sense and people aren't expecting to get plowed over at one 30 in the afternoon either. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of what you're talking about as far as the wave of what's to come. 
Well, in the addiction, it just, it, like anything, you know, smoking cigarettes, using heroin, using prescription medication, it's as real for any one of those things as it is for all of them. And people don't understand how addictive and how strong that pull can be for individuals as well. And clearly that's, that was the case, it sounds like, with, with your young lady. So. And so the interesting thing back when she was, when she was originally arrested and charged with these DWIs, and ultimately intoxication manslaughter, cases is that there was no preventative checks to keep you from going out and getting a multitude of, of doctors to prescribe you medication if you, you know, if you wanted to get more Vicodin or if you wanted to get more Valium or whatever it is, you could go literally down the street and get Valium from somebody else or another prescription from somebody else. Well, and that's how people would get that many prescriptions for different pain medications. And so... So there's been a change in the law to help prevent that, which has been the frustration of many people that, you know, their loved ones or prosecutors say these these defendants or we would say our clients, you know, what can we do when a doctor who's licensed to practice in the state of Texas gives prescriptions to people suggesting that it's warranted based on their uh, mental or physical health, that it's that it's necessary. How do you question that? And so the new law that took effect in September of 2017 Kind of uh, holds these all these uh, excuse me these doctors a little bit more accountable. It holds the doctors responsible, and what we'll do is we'll talk more about the changes in in the legislation as of 2018 after we take a break to hear from our sponsors. Dick, if the listeners want to hear from from Carmen on FM radio, where do they tune in to hear her? They can tune in every Wednesday. On Justice Blonde at 2 p.m. on Conroe's FM 104.5 and 106.1. And if they want to hear the podcast, they can subscribe to you on iTunes and Google Play. And then also, Dick, local radio, where can they see your pretty face? Uh, on local TV, you can see her on uh, Our City TV, Channel 12 on Southern Link Providers. And if you're in the Houston area, Channel 21 with uh, Antenna. And then also, don't forget your YouTube channel, Justice is Blonde. Justice is Blonde. Our talk shows and music shows are looking for sponsors. Want to expand your brand awareness? Reach the hyper-local audience in Montgomery County? Lone Star Community Radio sponsorships accomplish this. Want to see our stats and rates? Check out ourlonestar.com sponsor for more information. Or call in and leave us a message at 936-647-3776 with your questions. Get seen on TV, YouTube, and heard on our podcast, FM, and Internet Radio. Support your local radio station with Lone Star Community Radio. This is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And if you're just joining us, we are joined by Harmon Rowe, super lady lawyer, uh, legal analyst for Channel 26. So we're really happy to have her all out in our little community far, far north of Channel 26. Thanks for being here today, Carmen. Thanks for having me on. I'm having a blast. <laughs> new year, new you. New year, Not new too me. new, because you're pretty well, you're pretty well the way you are. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> There's always room for improvement. So as far as 2018, before the break, we were talking about just some changes in the law. You know, we talked about how there's maybe a move pushing DWIs now to be more things besides alcohol. Um, but what other changes in the law have happened that if you have a prescription drug 
dependency or preference or even um, addiction that you may have to expect that you didn't otherwise know. So what we were talking about before the break is this phenomenon, this problem with doctors in Texas who are prescribing, uh, over-prescribing medication, serious narcotic medication that's heavily addictive. And so uh, the legislature responded finally in 2017, passing a law holding these uh, doctors accountable and really monitoring individuals who are abusing the drugs, who are being charged with crimes, and doctors who have individuals who are, um, you know, not being uh, monitored properly. And so one of the things that doctors do generally with certain types of narcotic medication is they have to keep track of every single pill, where it goes and why. And that's to make sure that no one in their facility is abusing or using those drugs. But finally, somebody smart up in the legislature came up with this notion that maybe we should be monitoring outside of that office where those pills are going and whether or not we're giving them all to Andrea Kolsky or Carmen Rowe. And, you know, whether or not that's appropriate uh, prescribing to an individual, whether or not, like this young lady that you mentioned, whether or not five years later after they have a, you know, a back pain or a surgery or a severe accident, whether or not we should still be giving them Vicodin and other sorts of um, uh, heavily addictive narcotics and, and pain medication. Well, and my sister's a physical therapist, so she's a big proponent of, you know, you, you have to just go through the therapy steps. And ultimately, if you can't cure yourself with physical therapy, then surgery is an option. But but medicating yourself and, and kind of being zoned out on pain medication is is not a way that anybody should go through life. So, well, And you say that, and that's interesting, you know, pain management across the board is is complex and it's something that changes over time as to how we deal with it. There is no question over the last decade or probably two decades that we have addressed pain and every other problem that we have with a drug. And you know that the drug industries are making money hand over fist, encouraging Absolutely. doctors and incentivizing people to do that. So you have a, a lot of pressure coming out of the uh, pharmaceutical industry to continue to prescribe various medications. Right. You certainly don't want, if you're a big farm, you don't want regulations that are going to make it harder for your client base to be able to fill these prescriptions where big farm is going to charge the pharmacy X amount of dollars. The consumer only pays two or three bucks. And, and really, it's a shell game between, you know, the pharmacies, the big farm manufacturers, and then the consumer who is ultimately... And the insurance companies, obviously, too. But, you know, as far as people don't see a day-to-day out-of-pocket expense for these when they have insurance because everybody else is, is sharing the money. Exactly. And it's interesting, too, because, of course, these pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies are huge. And so their lobbying power has pretty much prevented any real legislation from coming out. And so this isn't as powerful as it could be, but it's really a start and it's a step in the right direction to start giving some teeth to this notion that there are physicians out there who are over-prescribing on a regular basis and creating problems that ultimately meet head-to-head with the criminal justice community. So what you have if you're a doctor or if you're a, if you're a prescribing doctor like a general practitioner or, or if you're a psychiatrist, which of course is still a doctor, but what happens is you go into your appointment and you, you say, hey, I need Vicodin. What they do is they will look you up in the, they haven't, now they have a database where they can see these are all the prescriptions that you've filled. These are the pharmacies where you filled them. Yes, you're going to get this or no, you're not going to get it. And they are able to confirm 
the prescriptions that you get, the prescriptions that you have had over the last five years or what have you. I don't know how far it goes back, but they have a database so they know what you take. They can say, okay, look, you're getting this drug from me, but I didn't realize you're also getting this from this other doctor. And this could create either a synergistic effect where it can cause a worse effect on your patient. You know, because when you have an appointment with your patient, you assume they're being truthful. And this is a way to actually check the facts. Absolutely. And it it helps too, because then these physicians can't say, well, I didn't know Dr. Smith was prescribing her X, Y, and Z. I mean, this really isn't a a way to hold these doctors accountable for doing more than just writing prescriptions. And this isn't every doctor, of course. Of course not. But it's happening at such a rate that it's creating enough concern that this law needed to be put into effect. And I hope that it has, you know, real lasting impact on those individuals that are being overprescribed. Well, and then you also have a situation where the doctors can be well-meaning. You know, you may not have the benefit of an MRI, but if somebody says, oh, I slipped my disc in this situation and these are the symptoms that I have and those are consistent with real pain symptoms, it would not be certainly malpractice to prescribe somebody medication that treats the symptoms that they describe, whether those are real or fake symptoms. No, but you point out, you know, it's excellent to point out that self-reporting is what we've relied on, as many physicians have relied on, and they're not going to come in and say, yes, I've had a five-year, you know, drug problem, and I can't get away from the Vicodin. They're not going to tell the physician that. And so they have to use different types of uh, cues and different information to try to ascertain that information, but it's not going to be self-reported. So this database that you were talking about is is an excellent way to kind of cross-check the information you think you're seeing in front of you. Well, another thing that I've noticed is that there's quite a few young people that have ADHD or ADD. Um, So, for example, when you and I have clients that have ADD or ADHD, you know, without being insensitive, I say everybody has ADHD or everybody has ADD. And certainly as an effective criminal defense attorney, it's, you know, you got to be able to multitask and be distracted at points. So, you know, I would say as adults, good lawyers probably are all ADD or ADHD (laughs) in some capacity. So you can think about more than one case at a time. But after interviewing some psychiatrists, what I found is that there has been some changes in the law where they require patients to basically provide a urine or blood test to prove that they are in fact taking Adderall or Vyvanse or whatever the Um, the medication is that they are saying that is required for their uh, attention issue. Mm. So you don't have a situation where you have somebody at college that goes to see their psychiatrist and they get a prescription and then they sell it on campus. I mean, certainly that that can happen, but they now have a check and balance system where if you're going to come and get this prescription, we're going to give you a blood test. We're going to give you a urine test. We're going to check. And so, you know, certainly if you are a person that is getting prescriptions that you're not intending to use, there's checks now that that prevent that. Yeah, and it's an interesting phenomenon because, <laughs> you know, uh, drugs aren't just big business in pharmaceutical companies. They're big business in high school and college where these individuals are selling those pills and making a pretty good living on the side of school, you know, to uh, afford all types of things by giving out these these pills. I mean, I think they're selling them for like, $20 a pill or something like that in some areas. And, and that's pretty costly. It's pretty costly. If you have a, you know, if you have a prescription for 30 yeah, and it costs you $5 or $20 from your, from your, your copay and you're in college and you're trying to say, Hey, you know what, I'll get this and I'll, and I'll sell them either to my friends or people that I don't know. And then, and then, um, you know, you, you end up on the slippery slope. Exactly. And so this is another, I think, check and balance that is being put on the, 
the doctors, the people that are in charge, you know, you're putting the checks. We, you know, our criminal clients, we can't always trust them to make good decisions. But as the, the people that are handing out the medicine, this is a way to say, okay, look, the people that are getting the medication are actually using the medication. They're using it in the way that it's prescribed and they're not using more. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting. It's like a cat and mouse game, you know. I mean, it's not take the drugs away. It's find ways to make sure that the drugs are being used properly. And again, that goes back to this allowing the drug companies to make the money they're making while still protecting the community from what is abuse or excessive use. And so. Well, and I think that, you know, ultimately, as folks in a community, you just want to be on the roads and be safe. So to know that if people are going to be on the roads, they're not going to be overprescribed medication. They're not going to be mixing medication, which impairs them as drivers. You know, that's ultimately part of the initiative, which, which protects everybody. Right. And driving and prescription drug use, like we talked about, it, you know, it's on the rise. And, you know, how much is too much when you're using prescription drugs that have been given to you by a physician? Um, whether or not you're going to be uh, found to be intoxicated to the point that you shouldn't be driving is a very complicated question that's answered by an officer on the side of the road. And so it's not as easy for you to know as the individual, and it's certainly not as easy for the state to know. And so that's another phenomenon that we're going to see develop over time uh, that we'll probably uh, be litigating more and more in the criminal justice system. Well, I know that you and I both handle DWIs, although... I w wouldn't say that that's our primary area of practice. You're busy freeing people from, from prison, and I try a wide variety of cases I like to think and well, consider. I in Montgomery County, DWI is a prison <laughs> I mean, as I understand it, so. That is true. Um, but what I will say is that, you know, and I do specialize probably in more serious, higher-level felonies than just a misdemeanor DWI. Usually when I get involved, it's it's your third or exactly. perhaps your seventh. Um, but nonetheless... There has been some, at least recently, there, you know, over the, the holiday season, there was in North Harris County a bit of a self-proclaimed crackdown. Um, Precinct 4 considered it a DWI initiative, and, and that was successful for them. Uh, how many people do you know got arrested? As I understand it, zero. <laughs> <laughs> no, 117 people got oh, arrested. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought there was, you were talking about accidents. Oh, yeah. How yeah. many accidents occurred? Zero accidents, 117 I people. I failed this test. <laughs> off the road. That's okay. I got to give you cliff notes. Um, but we're, what we'll do is after the break, we'll hear about some success story stories that Miss Carmen Rowe has had in 2017, which make you feel good as a lawyer. It makes us feel great to have you as a guest helping accuse citizens of the state of Texas, the great state of Texas. And we'll talk a little bit more about DWI changes in 2018. You're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. Lone Star Community Radio is looking for those who are interested in hosting their own talk show with monthly and weekly slots available on Conroe's FM 104.5 and 106.1 and on IRLoneStar.com. Start your own podcast create your first YouTube channel, and be on TV. Contact Lone Star Community Radio online at IRLoneStar.com or call the station message line at 936-647-3776. This is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And if you're just joining us, 
I'm sorry, you've missed a great show with very special guest, Carmen Rowe. She is a super lawyer who practices in Houston. And Carmen, we are excited to have you here. We know that you've been a past president of the Harris County Criminal Lawyers Group, basically running the show for those folks, Harris County, Houston. And also, we know you're a regular legal analyst for Fox 26 News. In Houston, that's right. So Isaiah Carey has a lot of questions for you, and you enlighten him and all the listeners, (laughs) viewers there on a regular basis. I'm also on the Isaiah Carey show, which is now at 1030 every night. And so it's an amazing show for people to watch as well. And you were did great coverage during the election. I was on the edge of my seat. It kept, <laughs> kept me awake watching your pretty face. And if you're also just joining us, the only thing you may not know is although the show is called Justice is Blonde, Carmen is in fact a brunette. It's true. It's true. But I'm representing for all my brunette <laughs> women out there and I'm okay with it. So, Carmen, tell us 2017, if you had to think about a case or some folks that you were able to help, uh, what stands out in your mind? You know, I love what I do. Being a criminal defense attorney is, you know, the most incredible honor because you get to help people. Very high calling. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. Right. I mean, you know. So, uh, but for the viewers out there, there's, you know, every year there's a case, there's a person. I can tell you in my mind, it's very clear. I have a 25-year-old young man who had a very significant death in his family in his life and it it spiraled him downward and he started using drugs and alcohol and he was stopped uh, for possess being in possession of drugs and he ended up getting charged with a felony uh, in Harris County and long story short we ended up going through a lot of bumps and uh, you know hurdles and and a lot of come to Jesus meetings etc but uh, about 95 days ago He went into rehab, and he's 95 days sober today. He spent the first Christmas with his family he's gotten to spend in years. I mean, his family didn't recognize him. I mean, it just had tore him up. And so he's sober. He loves his life. He's looking forward to a very bright 2018 um, with his family at home and really starting anew at the tender age of 25. And so I'm incredibly proud of him, and I am looking for many, many successes going forward. And it's just heartwarming to me. Many more 95 days followed by 95 days followed by 95 days. And 95 doesn't sound like a lot, but it's an incredible milestone for individuals who, you know, um, who are sober, especially when they're surrounded by people who are, you know, 60 years old and still struggling with day one again. And so... I know he's going to be uh, sober for the rest of his life. I have a number of young men like that. And it's just, it's unbelievable to have that kind of impact on someone at, you know, a time when they're in a, at a fork in the road. And so it's a fragile place. Yeah. And we all go through that. And, and some people go that far down. Some people don't. But, but it's incredibly rewarding to be part of something like that. And so. Well, you know, when I have somebody that comes into my office that I know is is addicted or I know that they are, their life is spiraling out of control based on either drugs or something like that. You know, I'll I'll try to have a heart to heart with them where it's like, you got to figure out a life plan because if you keep doing this, your life plan is not going to be anything that you hope for your life, you know? And that's what some people don't know. It says attorney and counselor at law (laughs) on both of our licenses, right? And it's absolutely true. I mean, counseling is a big part of helping people who are, you know, in dire straits or at a place where they clearly are in need most of the time. And so it's incredibly rewarding. And it is a calling, as you said, to help those people at a time when they really need somebody to get in their face and be honest with them. So, 
Well, and not only that, one of the things that is so great that what you do is you're able to actually go in when people are at their darkest times, uh, they're actually in prison. Um, and you have a lot of specialization in helping folks with post-conviction relief. And that's so fascinating. It's, you know, if someone has hit rock bottom, whether they're rightfully or wrongfully incarcerated, I mean, I don't know of a, a situation that would be below prison as far as the bottom in my mind, um, besides, you know, perhaps being dead or <laughs> that, that wouldn't be everybody's ultimate rock bottom. But, you know, that's one of the things that I think that is so exciting that you're able to do and help people with is, you know, they're, they're hopeless. And you come in and not only do you provide them hope, but in a lot of great situations, you're able to free them. And they're always going to remember you in that situation. Oh, yeah. And that, that's another, you know, incredible calling. And it's much harder because, as you said, these are people who are without hope. I mean, they've tried and they've tried and it's all failed. And once they go into the prison system, they're kind of lost souls then. And so, you know, sometimes they find somebody like me and other people who do post-conviction work that hear them listen to what they're saying and really work their case up in a way that's either different or, um, you know, we see things that weren't there before and talk about rewarding. I mean, helping somebody to get out of prison uh, is, is just, there's nothing like it. The ultimate calling, it's ultimate the reward. Ultimate call. And usually in, you know, the cases I handle are from capital murder to, you know, serious felonies. So we're talking about people who are looking at decades in prison. And so, you know, to get relief in that situation is just unlike, you know, it's lightning in a bottle. And, it, and the feeling is on par with that kind of that rare air that you breathe. And so it's, it's incredible. And certainly when somebody walks out of prison and they know you're responsible for it, that person will remember you forever. Absolutely. I mean, it's that's, a, a relationship. That goes without saying. Yeah, it's a relationship that you'll have forever, you know, that uh, people don't forget the people that were there for, for them when no one else was. And what do you think the most common reason is that people get convicted wrongfully? You think it's bad facts or bad lawyers? You know, I, I'd hate to say that. the worst thing that I think people do is, is suggest that there's bad lawyers. The truth is, is that we're human. We're all flawed. This is a complicated, difficult system that's stressful and trying on everybody involved. And so, you know, good people have bad days. Bad things happen in in good cases. So, you know, it's just sometimes that's just the way it goes. And there's any number of reasons why are people involved that could have think, done things differently. I think everybody contributes to these results, honestly. So I wouldn't pin it on one person. Um, but I do think that, unfortunately, we have a system that moves too quickly sometimes with people who are maybe sometimes too jaded and, and people fall through the cracks. And, and I think a lot of times if you looked closer at the people and made less assumptions, look closer at the cases, maybe made less assumptions, maybe you could get to those results. But the truth is some cases just have to run their course and you couldn't get there until you get to the other side. That's just the way it goes for some people. Well, those folks and anybody that happens to cross your path is lucky to have you, especially in 2018, where if you're just joining us, Carmen has a resolution to take even better care of herself. It's the year of me. She's the already lovely. So right. she's only going to get lovelier, <laughs> what it sounds like. She's already a fabulous lawyer. So we're really grateful. We're, we're, we are great. We are really great. We are great. <laughs> <laughs> but we really are grateful to have had you on our show. New year, new you, justice is blonde. And today it's also brunette. Absolutely. Justice can be brunette as well. And we're just as fabulous. Now, if you want to find us, you can look for us on uh, the Lone Star Community Radio app, Lone Star Internet Radio app. Right, Dick? 
Yeah, you can find more about Justice Blonde at IRLoneStar.com slash J-I-B. And uh, also you have Facebook. I think yeah, you also Insta, have your you YouTube channel. On the Insta. Instagram. Yeah, on the Insta. Hit me up on the Insta. Carmen, what's your Insta feed? You know, it's Carmen Rowe. So easy. Easy. R-O-E. R-O-E. Like Not Roe v. Wade. Famous from the beginning. Famous. Still, still famous. Born famous, still famous. 2018. Here we come. <laughs> You're listening to Justice is Blonde.